women have run the world for as long as I know, and they've just done it in the back rooms rather than at the forefront. To me, this is more about unleashing and supporting existing potential than anything else. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mayel Gave, CEO of Techstars, one of the largest pre-seed investors and accelerators in the world. In this episode, Mayel shares with us the importance of confidence, a strong network, and fundraising to women founders' success. I'm so thankful for the partnership that Women on the Move has with Techstars, and I look forward to supporting more women founders together. Mayel, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's really great to have you here. My pleasure. I couldn't be more, more excited to join you. There's so much to talk about, including the relationship that JP Morgan has with Techstars, but I'd first really love our listeners to understand more about Techstars. You're the CEO of the organization. And so tell us about the model that Techstars uses, you know, the accelerator model, and really the whole ecosystem approach that it brings to helping founders. Think about Techstars as one of the largest pre-seed investors in the world. We have almost 3,000 companies in our portfolio. This year, we're going to invest in six to 650 additional companies at the pre-seed level. And the way we do that is by organizing what we call accelerators. I personally call them bootcamp, which are like three months program where young or not so young entrepreneurs join us and for three months work with us to take their company to the next level. And as you mentioned, we think about it as an ecosystem building. So there are these accelerator programs, which I've just mentioned, but we also do a lot to build an entire environment around these entrepreneurs, whether it is before they even join the program. We have things like Startup Weekends or Catalyst Program, where we basically help activate communities all around the world, bring wannabe entrepreneurs and mentors and alumni of our programs and potential investors and corporate partners and government institutions. So basically, we really try to get a stronger ecosystem because no one succeeds alone. Or after the program for our alumni, we keep saying Techstars is for life. And so there's a lot of support provided to any company that we invested in so that they can continue to grow and be successful. So you mentioned just how many companies you invest in. That is tremendous. I think it makes you one of the biggest accelerators out there globally. And I think the other things that make Techstars so unique is, number one, this local market approach that you have so many accelerators in different markets. You're not just focused on Silicon Valley, for example. And the other thing is the way you work with communities. Can you talk about that? How did that local market approach evolve? And why is that so important to the model? The underlying view at Techstars, the underlying philosophy is that talent and ambitions are distributed equally around the world, but opportunities are not. And when you think about all the potential that exists around the world, and then you look at what happened in the tech industry and in Silicon Valley specifically that just address such a narrow part of the market, you can really see that there is a complete disconnect. And so what Techstars deeply believe in and does is go where entrepreneurs are. So this year, we're going to run 52 accelerators program around the world. We're going to do that in the program themselves in 18 countries. But then we have Startup Weekend and Catalyst programs, which are 
in 50 plus countries around the world. And we try to really be embedded into the communities and bring people, by the way, also from outside the community, because we very much believe in this networking and creating connective tissues around people from all backgrounds. And so that's what we do on a constant basis. And I've been doing for the last 15 years. And I've seen data that shows Techstars really has a very high percentage of diverse founders, so diverse and women founders. Is there a percentage number you have overall? Does that break down into specific programs? How do you think about that percentage? Is that a goal? It is absolutely a goal because we believe as an investor, again, Techstars is an investment business. We're one of the largest pre-seed investors in the world. As an investment business, we have a goal to make money. And the way we think about it is to go where there is untapped potential. It's a win-win-win. It's a win for the entrepreneurs because that's creating generational wealth for them. It's a win for tech stars. As we keep expanding, we have the opportunity to expand even more. And this is a win for our, our LPs and the people who have put money into tech stars. We look at the entrepreneurial ecosystem and we say, okay, who are the entrepreneurs of tomorrow who are not really invested in, who have this amazing untapped potential. And as a result of that, we have very regularly and very consistently invested in women, in people of color, in older entrepreneurs, in people with disability, in the LGBTQ community. It is a goal in itself because we believe that this is where there is so much opportunities to make a difference in the world and frankly, to also fulfill the expectations of everyone as an investment business. And do you think you're able to convey to investors that there's value there? There's really opportunity, maybe untapped opportunity in some of these overlooked founders. I think we do because we have now a little less than a billion dollar of assets under management. These are our investors who said, we believe there's absolutely value in what Techstars is doing. And we believe that there is this unique model where you can make money and do good for the world, where you can find the unicorns of tomorrow. Techstars has 19 unicorns and close to 100 companies with a valuation, with a market cap over $100 million. So we believe that there is value creation. And at the same time, we believe that there is an opportunity to bring more underserved founders to the proverbial table. And so our investors clearly have voted with their checkbook. And then if you look at the companies themselves that are part of our portfolio, the 3000 Portco that I was mentioning earlier, they have raised close to $21 billion. So yeah, I think there is a lot of investors who are seeing the value in what we're doing and in investing in these entrepreneurs. So talk about some of those unicorns. Do they have any common factor behind them? Are they from similar industries or are they actually quite diverse in the problems that they're solving? They're very diverse. What Pixar's praises itself in doing is really looking at every type of industry, every type of geography. When we talk about diversity, we're really talking about it from like the broadest angle possible. We talked about race and gender. We talked about age. It also encompasses different geography, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different education, et cetera, et cetera. So it really covers almost like an index type of portfolio. And so to be more specific, some of the most famous companies that we have in our portfolio, ClassPass, which is a monthly subscription service that provides access to a network of boutique fitness studio and gyms and spa and things like that. 
I would assume that a lot of you know about it, DigitalOcean, which is helping developers to build, test, and manage and scale applications. So completely different environment. We have a company that we've talked quite a bit about, which is called OLED Baby Care. And they offer a health monitor that allows parents to view their child's vital signs in real time. And I could go on and on and on. SendGrid, which is focused on email and build a really robust and really remarkable platform for supporting email. Zipline, again, I could go on and on and on. So it really goes from traditional SaaS businesses all the way to agrotech, prop tech, education, et cetera, et cetera. That is amazing. I mean, I'm sure each company and founder has his or her own story. And I always find those so fascinating. Tell us about the bootcamp experience. So if you're selected to join one of the accelerators, what is that like? How long is it? You stay in your local market, presumably, because you're all over the world. And what does a founder actually experience during that time? You have a few different models. We have accelerators which are all in person, and we have accelerators which are entirely remote. And then we have hybrids, for example, come for a week at the beginning and then a week at the end, and then the rest will be remote. And so depending on the program, depending on the appetite in the specific industry, we tailor a little bit the physical presence versus remote presence. The other thing I would mention is our our programs are extremely international. And so most of the time, the local participants represent a third or less of the people who actually attend the program. And this is done by design. Because again, back to my previous point, we believe in the power of this connective tissue and in making sure that entrepreneurs do talk, do encounter other people that will help them think outside the box. So that's at a high level. And then if you go into how a program works, so it's three months. It's pretty intensive. I usually say to founders when I meet them during their first week that they may want to schedule a holiday right after the program. (laughs) It is really intense. We walk them through a series of must-have classes Anything from how do you read a PL balance sheet and cash flow? Because a lot of our entrepreneurs wouldn't know how to do that, all the way to how do you build a proper go to market strategy, or what is the way to rightly position your company, or how do you build a team? Because a lot depends on the team that you're going to gather around yourself as an entrepreneur. So we go through all of that. We also have something that we're very proud of. We call that mentor madness. It's 10 days to two weeks of meetings with 100 mentors, you go into very intense mode, and then you have meeting all day long for, as I say, 10 to 14 days, where you meet mentors which are either related to your industry, because we want you to see what exists. A lot of the, what I would call the legacy companies, do actually come and send some of their employees as mentors as a way for them to see what is the state of innovation in their industry. But we also bring mentors which have nothing to do with your industry, precisely because we think that they may bring the knowledge of another industry to what you're doing and make you think through something differently. So let's say you are working in the pharmaceutical industry. We may bring someone from a big e-commerce company because they're going to talk to you about distribution, last mile, and customer service. Nothing to do with the actual business product that you're developing, but everything to do with your go-to-market strategy and how you're going to grow your business. And so the mentor madness piece is very important. And then fast forward at the end of the three months, 
you have a demo day, which is the moment where, think about it a bit like a graduation ceremony. You come and you present the business and where it stands. Usually you can talk about your first customers and your ambitions. It's a way to test that you can actually pitch in person in front of people. There are investors coming that finishes the program. And then we go into the post-program activities. And for fundraising, for example, which is a key piece of entrepreneurship this day, investor reveals or investor days where we would very specifically put you in front of investors. So the program doesn't finish at the end of the program, but these three months are very well tested by time because we've been doing that for 15 years. So it is very intensive, as you described, but what I really love is that you don't presume knowledge, that you really start with very basic information, if that is, again, reading a balance sheet or setting up your business and other operational aspects of it. Exactly. And we adapt to what the entrepreneur needs, which is why our classes are very small. It's 10 to 15 companies because we believe in this very hands-on approach. At that stage, most entrepreneurs have an idea maybe two or three people with them, sometimes an MVP, minimum viable product. Sometimes they have some revenue, but not always. And it's pretty common during this bootcamp to have entrepreneurs pivot and go from being a B2C business to becoming a B2B business, from addressing one geography to saying, you know what, actually, I probably need to do another geography. We've even seen companies pivot completely and go to an adjacent market, but like still a very, very different market. And so we believe that a lot is being changed by this hands-on approach, lots of mentorship, lots of coaching, and yeah, lots of time with us. Mayel, you mentioned before the pitch day or the demo day, as you call it. And I think demo day is one of my favorite things in terms of our partnership together, because you get to see the culmination of all that work that the founders do, and they are so tight and prepared and really have great stories. So I love that. But let me just say the whole program is obviously what we love. We are so happy as Women on the Move to be working with tech stars on very specific programs, pre-accelerator programs for women. And you know, we came to this partnership with the backdrop of the fact that women are getting you know 2% of venture capital funding. It hasn't really budged in many years. And so we set goals for ourselves of really helping to get several hundred founders through these kinds of accelerator programs over the next few years. And when we looked at the market, we really thought Techstars just had a wonderful model that we felt like we could partner with you very successfully. And I think now having gone through two cohorts, we know that's the case. So I just want to say thank you to you and your team for really showing us what's possible and for really training so many great founders. Oh, no, thank you for trusting us and for partnering with us. This is really teamwork. And so, yeah, it's been a phenomenal adventure. I personally have been spending a lot of time, a lot of time in my career talking about gender diversity and about how to make more women accessing to this generational wealth. And so that to me was very, very exciting to be able to partner with you on that. So we started with our first cohort in Atlanta in 2021 with a very diverse group of 20 women. And then our current cohort is now running in Washington, D.C. with a specific focus on the LGBT plus community of women. And so I'm wondering, as you see women in particular go through these programs, is there something that 
maybe is a special need for them? Is there something that women want or ask for in particular that's different from men? Or do they just need more of this opportunity? So I'm going to start by saying that women can do anything they set their mind on. (laughs) I think women are strong. Women are smart. Women have run the world for as long as I know. And they've just done it in the back rooms rather than at the forefront. To me, this is more about unleashing and supporting existing potential than anything else. And the power of sisterhood is phenomenal. When we focus on what we bring to this woman together with you, there are a few elements that I can think of. The first one is helping them with the imposter syndrome. It saddens me that it still exists, but the reality is we still have a lot of women who are not 100% sure that they're worth it, that they can do it, that they have what it takes. And going through these programs helps increase that confidence. And that's really, really, really important because as an entrepreneur, you better have a lot of confidence because the road is going to be long and painful sometimes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I mentioned it earlier, nobody succeeds alone. And it's particularly true in the entrepreneurial world. Your chances of success increase proportionally to the network that you have, whether it's the network to find the first people you're going to hire or the first customers that you're going to sign or the mentors that you're going to surround yourself or sometimes bring to your board or ultimately the investors. That is a game changer. And for different reasons, women tend to have networks which are not as powerful for them to help them be successful entrepreneurs. And so a lot of what these programs do is just to connect them to more people, more diverse people, and give them this extra push that makes a lot of difference. And then the last thing I would say is, frankly, it's money. I've heard so many people saying, yeah, we're here to support women and this is great and we believe in them and we're going to support them. Basically what I've just said for the last five minutes. But ultimately, it all comes down to money. Are you going to find a way to invest in this woman? And so I think for me, these programs are about that, are about making sure that these women are being funded, are being put in touch with the right investors, can potentially apply to the X-Rater programs of Techstars where we do invest in them. The combination of these three things that actually, I think, really matter. Thank you for that. And I think we see that very much in our day-to-day too. You know, the networking piece is so important to early founders, not only the reach of the network and the people in it, but the fact that women should tap the networks. There's been research that men tend to tap their networks more aggressively or more often than women do. And we want to really encourage women to use those networks, especially as they grow them through partnerships like this. And then the money, I think you're right, it all comes down to can they get those checks? And so this is what we really are interested in training women to do is to go out there and get more of that money. What I'm also really pleased about is that JP Morgan as a firm is partnering with Techstars in a bigger way. So we really look forward to more partnerships on the ground there. And I know a lot of great things will come from that. You know, you mentioned earlier that there's like 2% of venture capital money that goes into female founders. It's even less than that when you talk about Black entrepreneurs, like 1.2%. And so there is so much potential and so many things that can be done to unleash all this potential. As I say, you know, talent and ambitions are equally distributed, but opportunities are not. And the partnership that we're doing with you is basically trying to make this opportunity more equally distributed. 
Well, I'd love to know a bit more about your background. So way before Techstars, even when you were growing up, you know, tell us about how you came into business, how you came into technology, and maybe some of the more formative work experiences that you had. So I'm French, as I'm sure you've already heard, thanks to my accent. I grew up in what I would call low middle class family. My mother was a teacher and my father was an engineer, but not the glamorous Silicon Valley type, more like the kind who spent 40 years of his life in the back office of a bank in a room without windows. So very different background. And frankly, there was not a lot of money. And so I became an entrepreneur because I wanted to get nice dresses and nice shoes. And my parents were like, sure, you're going to have to work for it. (laughs) And so I built my first business when I was 16. And then I went into founding two others. The first two were pre-internet. I'm dating myself a little. And then I discovered the internet. I got my first email address when I was 19. I got amazed by what the internet could do. And then I joined the Boston Consulting Group. I was there for six years. And I was a member of the TMT practice. Again, I discovered e-commerce from the inside, not as a customer, but in terms of the potential that e-commerce had to transform the world. I think we now take it for granted that Amazon just delivers anything you want in like 24 hours. Again, I'm dating myself. It's horrible. But I still remember the times where that was absolutely not a given. And so to me, my first encounter with technology was one of amazing opportunity, just help people do faster, more easily, cheaper things that they would not have been able to do otherwise. And so that's how I fell into technology. So that group at BCG, that was technology, media, and telecom. And so the technology clearly was a big attraction for you. How did you combine your entrepreneurship experiences with that consulting bent? Because now you're seeing things from both sides, right? As an entrepreneur building a business, but as a consultant advising a business, were those both equally important experiences for you? Very much so. And I think that having had the opportunity, the luxury to have both really helped me. After six years at BCG, I was like, okay, enough. (laughs) I miss being deep in the trenches and do stuff. And so I was actually building my first business at the time. And then I discovered my very last project as a BCG principal at the time was for a small e-commerce company. I realized that I could be an entrepreneur without having to go through the zero to one because I didn't really enjoy the zero to one. It was like a little too deep in the trenches. And so I discovered that I could actually join a company that had already some monetization models, some success, some teams, and just help them scale. And so I became an intrapreneur, if you want. So I left BCG, I joined Ozone, which was a small e-commerce company at the time and which became the largest e-commerce company in Russia. Then I moved to the Priceline Group in charge of all the operations for the entire group. So they own Booking.com and Priceline.com, obviously, Kayak, OpenTable, and a few others. And then I joined Compass as their chief operating officer, now the largest residential real estate company in the United States. And every time I just did it because I felt like There was an entrepreneurial play inside these companies that I found really, really exciting. And you were able to take a technology background into different sectors, which is really interesting. 
and the ability to think strategically. I mean, after six years at BCG, like the matrix was deeply ingrained into my brain, but also the very in the weed experience of building a company. And I loved, and I still love being able to do both, which is being at 50,000 feet and think about what does it look like 10, 20 years from now? And also be like, okay, let's do a process mapping to make sure that we recruit faster. (laughs) You can do both. You can flex big and small. Mayel, you've also added author to your resume. You've written a book called Trampled by Unicorns, Big Tech's Empathy Problem and How to Fix It. Tell us about the book. Why did you decide to write it? And what do you mean by empathetic tech? I wrote the book almost like therapy (laughs) because I had been in tech for 15 years at the time and I loved everything I had done. And yet at the same time, I kept bumping into these situations where I couldn't stop thinking we're not doing what's right for humanity at the risk of using a big word, but it's just We're optimizing clicks and testing everything through A-B testing. And we're like, okay, great. The result of the A-B testing is that we should be doing X. And I kept thinking, is that really the best we can do? And I had been talking about it for years to the point where everybody around me was a little exhausted about it. And I never really decided to write a book. It's basically a couple of people in my circle, again, back to network, which is why network is really important. A couple of people in my network who came to me and said, you really, really have to write about it. And so I wrote a blog post and then the blog post became a slightly longer article. And then the article ended up being a proposal for a publisher. And then Wiley, the American publisher was like, yeah, yeah, we're interested. I just remember finding myself one day with the Wiley publishing contract in front of me and be like, I guess I'm an author now. I love that process. And what was your main message in the book? And what do you hope the technology community takes away from it? One, don't consider empathy as a weakness. It's a strength. Empathy is not sympathy. Empathy is not pity. Empathy is about putting yourself in the shoes of the stakeholders of your company. And I'm talking about corporate empathy. There are many, many books that have been written about individual empathy. Corporate empathy, for me, means as a leader, are you connected enough to the environment in which you operate and to the stakeholders that you impact? to see around the corner, to understand the impact of your decision. And it doesn't mean that, by the way, your decision necessarily will change, but at least you'll be able to understand better how to mitigate the side effects of your decision. And if you look at the history of the tech industry, especially over the last five years, when it became really obvious, the shortcomings of some of the decisions, to me, it always came back to this lack of corporate empathy, of understanding how does this impact the broader community? And so to me, the first and biggest message was you need to consider empathy as a key tool in your toolbox to make sure that your company is going to be successful, profitable, and sustainable in the long term, not the next two quarters. And then the second message was this is a team effort the team being humanity, and it's not just this company's job. Obviously, it is to some extent, but it's also all the different stakeholders. And so in the book, I wrote about the role, not just of the CEO and the leadership teams, but of the employees within these companies, the shareholders, the board members, the investment bankers that participate into supporting these companies, the regulators, as well as the media and the users, the consumers, 
And so to me, that was about saying tech is going to change the world even more so that we have seen it so far. And that's going to take a collective effort to make sure that we are building empathetic tech. We are building companies that think about the impact that they're having, not just on their users next month, but on the world for the next hundred years. It's so interesting to hear you describe that because your book really talks about an ecosystem and you are now the head of an ecosystem. So you can see exactly the message that you are trying to live. Are there specific companies or specific examples of how a company can go about being more empathetic, things that they should test, things that they should know about their customers, their stakeholders? What is a practical thing companies can do? Yes, absolutely. It's a never ending work. So it's not like there's these three things you do them and then suddenly miracle, you're an empathetic company and you have nothing else to do. Think about your mission, values, and vision. Do you even have the word human in them? You'd be shocked by the number of tech companies that don't even use the word human in describing anything that they're doing or any of the values that they refer to. Look at your leadership team and look at your senior leaders and how do you assess their performance? How do you assess their results? But how do you also assess their behavior? Do you consider being empathetic a key key criteria in how you assess people? Results matter, behavior matter as well. The third thing that you can do, again, internally within the company is look at your key decision processes. Do you think as you review them, and there's not a hundred, like if you think about it, all companies are basically built around the same type of decision. Like how do you allocate budget? How do you hire people? How do you exit people? How do you promote people? So you can pretty much get the core of your company in like 20 key decision processes and then look at them and think about, am I optimizing for short-term narrow impact, looking only at a very, very limited subset of stakeholder? Or am I thinking about a much broader impact, much longer term? When you think about these different processes, this is usually, if you do it systematically, this is how you end up building processes which are slightly more empathetic. As we head into really a new era of technology and a next wave of the internet, what makes you optimistic that we can get there to have more empathetic companies? Two things. First, we talk about it a lot more. And then second, there are so many more powerful women in the world and that does change everything. (laughs) I would agree with that. That is fantastic. And I'd love to end then with also your vision for tech stars over the next, let's say, three to five years. For me, Techstars basically has an ecosystem. It's a global and highly diversified ecosystem. And for me, the goal is to expand that ecosystem even further. This year, as I mentioned, we're going to do between six and 600 pre-seed investments all around the world. I am very much hoping that this number is going to grow much, much bigger. By doing that, we'll be able to bring even more underserved founders into that ecosystem and unleash their potential. Well, we look forward to partnering with you to do that and to see just how far you take things. Mayel, thank you so much for joining us and for all your work leading Techstars. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for inviting me and thank you for your partnership. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Mayel Gave. Her career journey from the Boston Consulting Group to CEO of Techstars is inspiring, both in terms of her achievements and her focus on diversity. 
For more information on our partnership with Techstars, please visit techstars.com slash mission slash JP Morgan. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.